Hi, and welcome to episode three of Betty, Girl Band the Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the series, rate it and review it. And now, let the magic continue. This podcast is meant for mature audiences only. Girl Band the Podcast, the tale of the band Betty's meteoric rise to the middle. Remember when Emma Goldman said, if there's no dancing at the revolution, I'm not coming? Well, tonight we have both. Thanks to Betty, we have the music. And thanks to all of you, we have the revolution. Hey everybody, I'm Amy. It's Allie here. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. Let's see what we were talking about before. We were talking about our adventures this far and some of the things that were happening around the time of the very, very early 80s in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Music. It was and our first band together, Quiver. Mm-hmm. Our Quiver, first band. I think, got together in 1981. Yes, definitely. So we were playing a bunch of shows in the D.C. area and mm-hmm. then around the D.C. area. We were sleeping with a lot of people. You were sleeping and with just, a lot of people. <laughs> well, just, yes. I remember you telling me the day after... You came home and there was some guy sleeping on the sofa. You went upstairs, took off your clothes, except for one string of beads, came downstairs and said, you don't have to sleep downstairs. I'll never forget that as long as I lived. And I thought, who are these women? Well, you might have been sleeping with people to prove something or not prove something to yourself, Elizabeth. But I was sleeping with a lot of people because it was fun. And it was the time and we were expressing ourselves as girls no, and like women. No, like I said before, once, once I started sleeping with women... That was it. It was fun. It was super fun. And I was always looking for love. I was always looking for that one that was going to sweep my heart away. And luckily you found him. It took a long time, though. It definitely wasn't in Quiver. But Quiver was so much fun. We mm-hmm. really had a great time. When it, we the five of us got together to play music, when we weren't fighting, it was magic. It was. Right in the love of The thing is about being in an all-girl punk band is the music doesn't really get separated out of the parties, doesn't get really separated out of the adventures, mm-hmm. doesn't really get separated out of the morning afters. That's mm, true. We were a punk band, but we also did harmony. We started we started off doing harmony. We were singing, we were doing acapella stuff too. So it was punk in this really sort of weird way. Mentality-wise, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it was more of a punk attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
but and 10 10 14th street southeast was the epicenter of a lot of great music i remember <laughs> used to have incredible parties there where people would come over I remember a government government issue played downstairs in the basement. I mean, we would just set up all the instruments and just have a hundred people crammed into a basement and partying and playing music. It was so fun. And the best thing is that our neighbors who looked out for us would always kind of see when the parties were starting or basically when they were ending. No, it was when we were going out. Not oh. not so much when we were staying in. We um, we went out almost every single night. Yeah, either to we, play or to play music or to get dressed up to go to some place. Yeah, yeah, we went to clubs. We went to see sh- concerts. We went to see, you know, Allison and I went to see Joan Armitrading, and we almost got thrown out of the out of Constitution Hall because we were the only ones dancing. As soon as she came out on stage, you and I rushed to the front of the stage and we're dancing wildly and all of a sudden I felt a tap on my shoulder, turned around, every single other person in the entire venue was sitting in their seats except for Elizabeth and I. You rebels. Kind of humiliating, but also like, (laughs) what's wrong with you people? But Joan told the policeman to leave us alone. Remember, she was stoked about us dancing. That was funny. Yeah, we 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 saw the Eurythmics, we saw Culture Club. We saw every, and everybody at, at, at where I worked at the Bayou, Echo and the Bunnymen played there. Cindy Lauper, before she was Cindy Lauper, back when it was Blue, Blue Angel. Angel. Yes, I saw um, her too. Roy Orbison, I mean, Loretta Lynn. It was so cool that you were working there in Georgetown with all that great music. I was still working at the Crazy Horse in Georgetown, mm-hmm. which was sort of like a, uh, uh, almost like a country and western R&B. Pole dance bar. Pole dance bar, yeah. basically, <laughs> basically, with yeah. a wet t-shirt concert <laughs> contest. And I wasn't extremely happy. Um, you were the only African-American I was the only there. African-American person. Mm-hmm. then when I found out that any time an African-American woman came in to interview, because there were only girls bartending, they would circle her name. I found out they would circle her name so they would know she was black and they would not hire them. And I, as soon as I found that out, I realized that my days there were numbered. And it was time to go find another job. so creepy. Oh, you know, welcome to America. Hello. I, I didn't have a bartender job at the time. This is Amy, because probably I'm the worst person in the world to ever try to give anybody a drink or serve anybody anything. Oh, you were a waitress for one day. Uh-huh. We I'm, came in and we're like, it's, Don't charge us. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. You gave me the secret to actually making more money, not to give anybody a bill, and then just tell them how much money it was and keep it. And I said, somehow that doesn't seem honest to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I did and was fired immediately. And <laughs> yeah. Instant crime. You're not a successful thief. But no. Amy, what you could do more than anybody else What's was that? sell, sell, sell. Yeah, I was building an empire. I was uh, the sales director for Worldwide Travel. Mm-hmm. East Indian Travel Agency, and at the same time, I was a fellow graduate at George Washington University Mm -hmm. teaching undergrads French. Yeah. I love the fact that you've been a salesperson since you were a little kid. When you tell me the Charms Pop story, I think that is so you. It's strange, isn't it? No, not at all. You've always been a huckster. Yeah. I wanted to... um, I always saw... I don't know if it was money or You looked at people like they were dollar signs, and now you look at people like they're ticket sales. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. I once asked Kate Clinton, as a matter of fact, in Provincetown, when do people start looking like people again as opposed to tickets? And she said, never, (laughs) never. And I think that's just the way I see people But what you did in elementary school was you bought a whole box of Charms Pops, and then you would sell them at school. Resale. Yeah, for 25 cents each. And you made a fortune. I did, actually. It's so clever, and it's something I never even thought of doing. That's how your brain works. You know, when you're in in school, you want candy. You're And you're a born salesperson. (laughs) You you identified the market, and you worked towards it. But the thing is, she didn't market up too much. So people didn't hate her. They loved her because she was a candy man. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and then it went on from there. I sold lots of different things. Did you sold I, tickets to our shows and still do. Yeah, I, I, much to the bane of a lot of people. It's it's a mantra. Have you got your? Did you get your tickets yet? It's going to be on your tombstone. Are you yes, it yeah. will be. It, it, there lies Amy. Did you get your tickets yet? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's 1981, and we're in Quiver. did have a kinship among the three of us. We really did. And it just grew from there. It just felt like Allison was one of our sisters. And and also, you were such a good bass player. Well, you just made you. It, you made we it did. so easy. Just Thanks. Listening we did. to some of these quiver songs, you can hear, you know, everybody was a pretty good musician. We did have a couple problems on stage, though. For mm. some reason, things would sometimes fall apart. And I remember the worst gig we played was on Thanksgiving night, or Thanksgiving Eve, at uh, Desperados, our, my favorite place to play, and everything just kind of fell apart. Yeah, we sucked. We I were, think, we were I playing, think and because... so this is Christmas, remember that? Yeah. And it just... Wow, it was really bad. And you could see people sort of like scurrying to the door a little bit. Like, like a nightmare. Stepping. Like one of those it nightmares was, yeah. that all musicians have. But you know who was there? And I remember because her head was, her head's ginormous, right? And, I, and the light was shining behind her. It was my mother's best friend. Aww. Lucille. Yeah. Lucille Wiener was in the audience. And okay. that's the only person I remember or the only thing I remember from that gig other oh, than I remember. pretty I think we're too hard on it, on ourselves. I, we thought that everything fell apart, but I don't think it was that way in reality. What was what was in reality was that we were getting anxious and we were we wanted to spread our wings a little bit and we thought Alice and Elizabeth and myself we thought that there was um there were some other different ways of expressing ourselves musically, and we were we were ready for a change. I think. Okay. I don't I don't know if that was me. I just that knew that we sucked either. that night. Yeah, we sucked. And <laughs> but but maybe I love your take on it. But what was great was is that at least we knew that we didn't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. There was something still there, but it just wasn't quite right. So the five of us had over by uh, Maria Maria's van. The five of us had a little powwow. A little powwow where we said. Y'all, this is really not working. See you later. See basically. you later. All of us should see you later. And um, Maria completely agreed. She had something else that she wanted to she do. She went anyways. on to do Stomp. Yeah. Oh, that's right. She went yeah. on to do Stomp. She went on to the you know the the off Broadway. But yeah. it wasn't so, it wasn't cantankerous or anything with her. It was it was more more like she kind of recognized that we needed to leave. I too. think we all knew that yeah. gig was really. I think it was an awful gig and it fell apart. And when we were watching the audience, sort of like check please. Oh man, that feeling. I can't stand that feeling. So I was saying to myself, Allie, it is definitely time. Time to, to move on. Hi, everybody. My name is Maria Breyer, and I was the drummer for Quiver. And let me say a few words about Betty. You know, we have all the great things about it, of course, but the, ba- the, the most painful thing was that I had to go on home leave and I had to leave the band for a couple of months. And then when I came back, I, I was out of the band, just like that. And so it wasn't talked about, and you know, I never really understood. I do now, of course, because they had this vibe between the three of them. And there was no room for what was then known as quiver. But it's cool now, you know, I mean, things move on. We, I went my way, they went their way, I went to New York, and they ended up in New York as well, and uh, we moved on. I don't need my armpits, I never want to care. My dozen body. 
I was going to leave you guys though I really didn't that didn't enter my well I couldn't get rid of Amy but well, I, I, I wanted to get rid of you Elizabeth I thought I was going to go on to be the big Broadway star that I needed to be in the beginning now seriously Amy when we broke up Quiver you Wait. you could have gone on right then and there you could have gone to Broadway you could have gone to New York but you didn't you chose to stay I did didn't I <sighs> so I only have myself you to wanted blame. to get rid of me no but it is interesting the choices that we make. The choices that we make inform everything that who we become later on. And so there we were, three gals without a band, but with some <laughs> without ideas. A band, without a manager, without a booking agent. Without, without a van without once a van. Maria left. Yeah. But I remember what we did. Hmm. Drugs. I got a job. I had more sex. I just know that it was time for me to move on from the crazy horse. I needed to find another job, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But Amy, you had a wonderful friend who we all loved, who we called Tubby. I called him Tubby Maloney because he looked like a boxer, but his real name is Dan. And he was one of my friends from college, actually my junior year abroad in France, (laughs) south of France. Anyway, he came back and he um, kind of fell in with our crowd. Yeah, you dyed his eyebrows and his mustache black for some reason. And his hair. He used to let you cut his hair. uh He used to let me dye it, cut it. He used to let me get clothes for him. Now, this is like a straight guy that was hanging with a he just didn't care he didn't didn't care care at all he's he's really fun and he still is he's still Still a wonderful guy i love an open guy that just wants to have fun he he, tubby got a job at making waves which was a hot tub place that's right i don't think they have he was psyched about it because someone that was working there drilled a hole into one of the compartments so everybody used to talk about that they could see like really hot people getting naked and then taking a hot tub. But I think we have to explain what Making Waves was because I don't think they exist anymore, right? I, they, they better not do. Be. It was a, a hot tub emporium. And <laughs> when I was looking for a job, uh, Dan, Tubby, said, uh, well, why don't you work over here at Making Waves? So I said, okay. And basically what we had to do is we had to climb into the hot tub, wash it down, and then go upstairs and sign somebody else into the hot tub. And it was beyond the grossest thing you've ever seen or it done in your entire life. It didn't it, seem so gross at the time. Remember, you were like, come over and have hot tubs whenever you want. Well, so. I liked being at the desk and selling, you know, mm-hmm. getting people signed up to go into them. But the actual cleaning of them was not my favorite thing. At I all. remember one time we went, and I think it's the only one time we went. Amy and I went, and you... And gave the three you a, of us gave you a free hot tub. And remember? the three of us were taking a hot tub. And I remember when you took your towel off, Amy and I just looked at each other and stared at you because you had the most incredible body I oh. had ever seen 
in my life. That's literally. I wonder who was watching through the keyhole that they time. all were. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I, I I would have been watching through <laughs> the keyhole if I could have. But like remember, yeah. it was then, such a crazy time in 1982 that they would have a hot tub place, and it was packed. I mean, people were coming in in and out, literally, of making waves all the time. And you know what? That was near. That was actually near the Chesapeake House, which was a it was a go-go bar for men at the time. And a lot of the guys who worked on the Hill, a lot of congressmen and, and people like that would go to the Chesapeake House. Mm-hmm. And there was, a un, there was an untold you know, kibosh on the press would never talk about who was gay or who was going out with men. Terry Dolan, who was one of the most vehement anti-gay congresspeople, turned out to be gay mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. I think Making Waves was a cover for a lot of people. They would go there because it seemed pretty oh, innocuous, innocuous and you yeah. know and just kind of good times right hey let's go you know have a hot tub work those kinks out of work our neck. those kinks yeah. out and and then the, once the doors closed a lot of kinky kinks were happening That's anyway true. it was just, it was super gay right well what i remember more than anything else that yes there were a lot of gay people but there were a lot of straight people and nobody really cared it was just people but i do remember some of our friends saying oh i don't feel so great or oh i'm coughing all the time or our friend Danny, remember, saying, look at me, how trendy is it that I have the gay cancer? Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. We got the, I think we got a phone call from him. He I was, saw him on the street. Was, oh, you did? Yeah. He was 18, mm-hmm. and he died very quickly. Like... Very it, soon after that. Didn't mm-hmm. he die like a month later or yeah. something? AIDS was everywhere. It was before it was AIDS. It was gay but cancer in 1982. Right, but we didn't know. We didn't have a name for it yet. We didn't have the lexicon. We didn't have the emotional, any kind of, any tools to deal with what was happening no to one the did. community. No one did. No one and did. we didn't. Well, it we, happened so fast. Yeah. All these great guys that we loved, all the people who used to come over and party at 1010 14th Street, so many of them all, all of a sudden really started getting su- very sick. Supportive, wonderful, wonderful, sparkly, magical men and boys that were our friends, fans, and people, co- you know, basically contemporaries that were. But doing we were a things. bit younger than the actual. We were, we were younger because a lot of the guys that got it at first had, were older. Mm. And then, because Danny was one of the first people we knew. And then I, and then we went to, we started singing for guys in, uh, started, that's how really our, a lot of our acapella stuff happened because we, w- we went to hospitals. Yeah, and I remember sang singing for, our for friends. Eason. Remember we went and sang for Eason? Yeah, mm. Eason, Eason was a friend of ours and he worked and he got, he got super sick and, and passed away really quickly. But we went to sing for him in the hospital and I remember it was a time when people, doctors and nurses were wearing face masks and gloves. They wouldn't mm-hmm. touch the patients. And we didn't do that. We just went in and we were, he had carpal We sat on the bed. He had carpal sarcoma. Right. We were, Stroking you and I were rubbing his, his feet. Yeah, I remember. And uh, we sang to him. We sang a cappella. I think we sang we sodomy a couple, even. Yeah, we When there was so much fear surrounding it because nobody knew what the hell was going on. Right. That when we left, we went straight that room, to the bathroom. We left, that, we left his, his hospital room. All three of us didn't say a word to each other, and we walked straight into the closest bathroom, and we were scrubbing our hands. I know. We just were in so case. But there's so a terrified. difference. There's a difference between being present and touching your friends mm-hmm. and holding on to your friends, and then afterwards, 
being terrified because you can't show that we didn't show that terror and most of us in the community didn't show that terror to our friends True that, Amy. But you know, it was really the worst part of the whole thing was that nobody was saying anything. Remember, we would go and we would go to the government. How many times did we go to the White House and say, speak up about this? How many times did we join protests? And Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS until 1986. Nobody. After hundreds of thousands of people had died already. Even even our our friend, Mayor Barry, nobody said Mm -hmm. anything. And it was time to speak up. Oh, well, well, everybody was trying. I mean, that's how ACT UP started. That's how ACT UP started. It felt apocalyptic in a way, but not in a way that helped. I mean, a lot of people have talked about it. A lot of people have written about it. A lot of people have tried to process the feelings in all sorts of artistic ways and all sorts of different kinds of ways. But I guess in reality is is that we had friends that we loved and we lost. And um, there was a community there that... But there was also a community of happiness and mm-hmm. art, art and celebration. artistry and celebration that was happening around it. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Making Waves obviously shut down, and as did anything like that. And I needed to find another job. And someone talked about the 930 Club. I'd heard about it, but I'd never been before. And when I walked into 930 Club, literally my life changed. I started working there, and every band who was anywhere on the scene played there it was amazing and people would come from all over it was only 199 seats and yet it would be packed every night with people who were loving go-go or new wave or punk or hip-hop just every kind of music that was bursting on the scene right then yeah hardcore yep most people were standing though right it was yes uh, i say 199 seats but most people were like you know uh, in the mosh pit and it was owned by a woman which was super super cool because it was by far the coolest place I had ever been in my life. That's and right. Dodie Bowers mm-hmm. owned it, and she was amazing. She was uh, she was incredible, and people played there like Minor Threat, Fugazi, Government Issue, The Slicky Boys, Urban Verbs, Chuck Brown, the Root Police, Boy Slim. The, the police, police played there when there was har- hardly anybody there. I had such an incredible time working there, and I loved the people that would come in. And every once in a while, there'd be a really cool musician mm-hmm. there. And I remember speaking to one guy one night and having a really good connection with him and saying, you know what, I'm in a band. There's three of us, and we're looking for a guitar player. Will you come over and play? His name was Wally Pfister. This is Wally Pfister. I first moved to Washington, D.C. in early 1981 as a news cameraman. I met up with the girls from Betty and immediately formed a wonderful bond and played guitar with them for a few short months. I particularly remember a song called Pretender that they had written. I did kind of a reggae guitar riff to it and uh, we had a fantastic time. I love those girls to this day. He was really handsome. He was really good looking. Uh huh. And he, he liked to laugh. And that Great was, sense of humor. Yeah, that was important for us. So he came over to jam with us. Of course, some of you might know Wally Pfister has gone on to won a couple. He, he's won a couple of Academy Awards. No, he's won one. He won an Academy Award for cinematography. He's mm. an amazing cinematographer. And now he's a big director. He's a big deal. He's, he's a big, a big, big deal. Cheese. But <laughs> at the time, it was just the three of us and Wally playing guitar. And we had two songs that we played over and over and over again. Laugh, 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 laugh. And Around that time, I was going out with Howard Page, who worked at DC 101, which oh, was a big rock. He loved you so much. He it loved was, you I, so he, much. Wonderful guy. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a DC 101 where also Howard Stern had just gotten a job. And Howard Stern started doing something called Dial-A-Date. 
343 WMC Plain Dial Day. What happened? Oh, you don't want to do it? You don't want to do your shoe thing? Oh, yeah. And Howard Page says to me, "Hey, you should you are, you guys are great singers. You should come and do Dial a Date with your new band." And so we did. The three of us went on. We didn't have a name, and so we came up with the perfect name for the three of us and Wally. Wally and the Beavers. We thought it was genius. We thought we were it going straight genius. to the well, top. Well, so d- I mean, How- Howard Stern loved the name. That's for sure. That's he was sure. he was such a nice guy when the when the mic was off. True. And then as soon as he was on the air. He was a complete prick. Monster. But he was actually nice to us. We played with Wally for a little bit. Oh, we loved Wally and the Beavers. It was so much fun. But we never actually did a gig to this day. <laughs> and we saw him not too long ago. And we keep saying, Wally, we have to do a gig sometime just well, to resurrect wh- our two songs. Pretender. <laughs> I think he moved out to L.A. Right? Very that was quickly it. after that. That's true. He really was. The whole time he was actually doing um, news photography at the time. And so he really was in that world. Yeah. Well, so then he headed out. Mm-hmm. And we... Um, we decided to continue on. We wanted to form another band. Mm, and we had been singing a cappella um, among the three of us to each other, but we were really looking to, to do another band. And by this time, I had picked up the Casio keyboard, mm. and I knew a couple of chords. There and um, There was no stopping us then, I'm telling you. <laughs> and then one night, there was a tall, angular man standing in the corner of the bar, and we started talking about XTC, the band, because he was crazy about them, and there was a phenomenal band playing that night. And the more I talked to them, the more I thought, wow, maybe this could work. His name was Andy Charnico, and he came over to play with us, and On Beyond Zebra was born. Mm. He was super good looking, and really, really like weirdo smart, and a really interesting, a really interesting player. Like he he had the he was the first guy I knew that had a um, classical had a guitar, background. He had a guitar synthesizer. Oh right. And he had all those pedals, so his mm-hmm. guitar could sound like he had like really weird sounds, and he was very interesting, very experimental. Uh, yeah, very really experimental. Really like doing really good composer, stuff. but really appreciated what we were doing. And it was pretty exciting. Oh, it was really exciting. Silk sheets, I put my cold feet on your silk sheets. Heartbeat. That's all I feel from you. It was uh, multi-layered. Absolutely. It was very different from the punk new wave slash acapella girl group that yes. we had. We, we this was more full on. It was arty. Art, art rock new wave. That's kind of where we where we were at that. Point. Definitely definitely verging on the new wave, but just because of how we dressed for one. We were really prolific at that time. We're writing a lot of songs together, True. and we had a lot of shows. Well, I, I'm trying to remember some of the shows. I don't really remember. Cagnes. I do remember one of our first, con- not concerts, but one of our first appearances with just the three of us. This is before On Beyond Zebra, was we sang the Hokey Pokey at the end of a Take Back the Night march when everybody was in a circle. We should have known then what would happen to our career. Skyrocket up. I mean, it's funny. I don't remember that at all. Well, we had some fun songs that we were working on and that we actually performed. So there was performance. And there was a lot of performance. And Andy was super excited about what we were all doing together. Mm-hmm. It was it was glorious. It was, it was very very. It was funny because we went through a lot of drummers. I remember we we had Steve, mm-hmm. uh, who was great, and then uh, Mike Pugh and someone else in there too. It was hard to find Andre. the right person. Andre, it was hard mm-hmm. to find the right person, but we played a lot of fun gigs. Oh, Andre, who looked like a kitten. Mm-hmm. That's right. We played looking. the 930 Club. We played 
stayed a lot of places. Mm-hmm. I remember we we went to London. Remember that we went to London with Andy. We went to London to find a drummer. To find a drummer. This is 1982. Wow. And we flew on People's Express. Yeah, so it was like $25 to go. And you had <laughs> and to we carry your instruments. We hitchhiked back because we didn't have any money. We hitchhiked back from New York to D.C. Andy I and didn't. I didn't. Andy and I hitchhiked. That was a different time, wasn't it? Was, it? It, wow, it, it definitely amazing. was a different time. We started realizing that as we continue to play along and do Wait, gigs. Wait, I remember another gig that we did. What? We played our first Pride. We played our first Gay Pride. With, mm-hmm. As on Beyond Zebra. Mm-hmm. And it was back when Gay Pride was hidden away. When nobody would actually talk about it, do about it. When people said it would kill your career to do it. They came to us and said, do you want to play this? And we said, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. It was on P Street behind all those bushes. P Street Beach, they used to P call it. Beach, and you had to like walk down behind the bushes and mm-hmm. hide up on the stage. And I remember Gigi came and she was wearing, had that little parasol. And you had to pay a dollar to get in. So they wanted to keep the riffraff out. <laughs> but I remember a lot of people saying there was an article in the paper saying birds of a feather. Why would anybody go and support something like this if they weren't gay? Uh, it was 1982. It was a big deal to be playing at Gay Pride. Right. And and they I not they, for us. They couldn't get a lot of people to play. Yeah, but it wasn't for us. It was like, you know, there's things that have to be ta- no one still no one was talking about AIDS in the way they mm-hmm. should have from the government there were so many things politically that were making us so pissed off about how women were being treated mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. you know the Roe v. Wade controversy was still up in the air Plus, and it those was, were our friends that was at, our community well at, gay, at that gay pride in DC for the first time I saw a little table with two really beautiful men and they were wearing act up t-shirts and they'd come down from New York and they were selling the buttons and I remember going up to them and saying what is that because we didn't know from act up mm-hmm. in DC yet they Avram was one of them, and they were really articulate and really great, and people were starting to really get educated about what was happening politically. So there was a forum that was great. And we were also nuts on stage. It was super fun. We played Gay Pride. We played a lot of other festivals, too. Adams Morgan Day Festival, a great community festival in Washington, D.C. There was a really... Uh, artistic time for all of us and one of our songs was Picnic Love Affair Mm -hmm. and I started doing something that I loved that we still do today spoken word pieces Ah, I think that was I think there was a lot of spoken word going on at the time rap had just been happening and for a while now Mm -hmm. and there was a whole performance poetry slam thing going on with So I would incorporate spoken word into our sets. And what was great about it is that both of you always were so excited about different ways to um, present present songs and to be on stage, whether it was a monologue or whether it was a character. Do you remember what you used to say in front of Picnic Love Affair? Mm -hmm. Let's eat in bed. I'll spread my table and you polish up your silverware. Oh, don't be shy. Read the menu very carefully and ask about la spécialité du jour. You know, I only wish we'd started this feast last week. Then I wouldn't have had to wear a napkin. <laughs> bon appétit. Oh, and then we would play <laughs> Picnic Love Affair. People oh. didn't know what the hell was going on, but they enjoyed it. I it was, enjoyed it so yeah, much. Yeah, there was this freedom. And I think because you wanted, oh, you always wanted to go to the Great Broadway, you were able to get some of your ayahs out that way through characters and, and spoken word pieces. and But then... Then it was it was conformed a little bit because we had to be in this five piece band sort of situation. What's interesting though is the song itself, "Picnic Love Affair," traveled from there to other bands. Mm-hmm. Some of our music has stayed through band after band after like band. Like looked inside his window. Yeah, and it's it's cool that that, that happened in such a way. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha 
Girl Band Podcast was recorded, engineered, and produced by Elizabeth Ziff in her studio in New York City East Village, traffic included. It's safe to say that most of what you remember is most likely wrong in one way or another. So this is what Betty remembers. Take it from there. Music clips and other credits. All Quiver and On Beyond Zebra music, courtesy of Allison Palmer Archives. All Quiver and On Beyond Zebra songs are original unless indicated. Gloria Steinem intro. Chain Reaction by Betty from the album Hello Betty. I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family, written by Tony Romero, performed by Quiver Live at the Sunrise Club 1981. Sodomy, Quiver Live. Are You Happy Now? Quiver Live. Cheesy Writer, Quiver Live. NBC News Gay Cancer Story, 1982. Sodomy, Amy Allison Elizabeth. Act Up in Front of the White House, 1980s. Pretender by Wally and the Beavers Basement Tapes. Dial-A-Date on the Howard Stern Show on DC 101. Silk Sheets on Beyond Zebra first demo. Picnic, spoken word piece, Amy Ziff. Picnic Love Affair on Beyond Zebra demo. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and rate and review it. For more information, check out their website at hellobetty.com. Cheers for now. And fried with despair when I tell you I need you, you don't seem to care. You've munched on my feelings and swallowed my pride. You've